Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and welcome to Diffusion, your favourite half hour of scientific discussion and discovery in the world. I'm Tilly Boleyn, and let me warn you that you're going to need to hold on to your protective eyewear this week as we all take a ride on the roller coaster of scientific delights. A little later in the show, we'll have some good news for expectant chocoholics. No sane, pregnant, chocoholic Diffusion listener should miss it. Mark West will also continue his one-man quest to list the top 10 science stories of 2006. The countdown from number 5 to 1 will feature a little later in the program. But first up, who needs science news? Not us this week. Just sit back and relax as Diffusion's own New York correspondent, Kashina Allen, continues her exploration of the wonderfully weird world of water. Water can boil at many temperatures. Altitude and air pressure can affect the boiling point of water. A boiling point is reflective of the forces required to force the molecules apart. At high pressures, where a substance is more compressed, more energy is required. The higher the pressure, the higher the boiling point. At the top of Mount Everest, where altitude reduces air pressure, water boils at approximately 69 degrees Celsius, not the usual 100. On a stormy day even, when air pressure is up, water can boil slightly higher than normal. Also, in a tall pot containing a lot of water, the water at the bottom will be compressed slightly, and thus the water will require a slightly longer and a slightly higher temperature to boil. Additives can also vary the boiling point of water. A few, such as alcohol, lower the temperature, but most, such as salt, increase it. The explosive boiling of milk is due to water heated beyond 100 degrees. Hot water can freeze faster than cold. In 1969, a Tanzanian science student, running late with an assignment to make ice cream, put hot milk into the freezer and watched it freeze faster than cool milk. He was not the first to notice such phenomena. Indeed, Aristotle and a number of other notable scientists over the centuries have mentioned the same thing. It seems ridiculous, and also to violate Newton's law of cooling. Cooling in general involves the transfer of heat energy from the warmer body, in this case water, to the cooler, in this case air. The greater the difference in temperatures between the substances, the faster the hotter object cools. This is Newton's law. However, hotter water has more energy in it than cold, and thus has more to lose before it can freeze. Theoretically, hot water should take longer to freeze than cold water. Mpemba was tenacious enough not to be dissuaded by his class teacher's logic and brought this strange result to the attention of a physicist, Dennis Osborne. Testing by later scientists verified Mpemba was correct. In some cases, it is true. Hot water does freeze faster than cold water. But how can this be? The exact mechanisms are not clear, but it appears that a number of factors may be at work. The first step in understanding this is to see the two containers of water as separate entities. The hot and cold containers are not identical, 
and even when the hotter water cools to the initial temperature of the cooler container, it may not continue to chill in the same way as the cooler container did. Firstly, hot water evaporates faster than cold. Evaporation causes cooling, and thus when compared to the cooler water, the hotter, evaporating water will become colder faster. Evaporation also reduces the total quantity of water which needs freezing, thus it may reduce the time needed to cool. Secondly, heating water can change the chemical composition. Water contains a number of impurities and heating water may alter the mixture of gases dissolved in the water. This could alter the density, the freezing temperature and the rate of cooling of the water. Thirdly, convection may be at work. If the container holding the hotter and cooler water is a little insulating, the water will primarily cool from the surface. When water starts to cool, it will sink, creating currents. Hot water will cool faster at the surface due to evaporation, and this water will move downward, leading to variability in the temperature of the water. As the hotter water is cooling faster, convection currents will be greater in the hotter container than currents in the cooler water. The cooler water will maintain a more steady temperature across the depth. As both containers cool, if they reach a point where the average temperature of each container of water is the same, the water which started hotter should have more heat at the top and less at the bottom of the container due to these convection currents. In comparison, the water which started cooler will have a more uniform temperature. Heat can transfer out from the warm top level faster than it can from the more uniform water, and thus at the point where the average temperatures of both containers are identical, the previously hotter water can continue to cool faster than the previously cooler water. Finally, there is a phenomenon called supercooling. Water may usually become ice at zero degrees Celsius, this is due to particles seeding the formation of ice crystals. Without such a seed, water can actually be cooled below freezing temperature without solidifying. At some point, water will spontaneously form ice. However, without a seed, the temperature at which this happens can vary. Hotter water may form ice-like structures at a higher temperature than cooler waters. This means that cooler water may need to reach a lower temperature to spontaneously freeze. Thus the freezing points of the two initially hotter and initially cooler containers may not be the same. Other possible explanations include differences in the airflow around the hot and cold water containers and differences in the surrounding conditions. Perhaps, for example, the hot water melts ice below the container so it's sitting directly on the freezer floor. While still a point of argument, a combination of many of these factors probably accounts for this strange property of water. And finally, one last weird property of water. Water may remember what was dissolved in it when that substance is removed. You may have heard of some homeopathic remedies which involve diluting a solution so much that there is no trace of the original compound that had been added to the water. The claim is that this can cure a number of ills. It seems ridiculous. Once you have diluted a solution to that extent, the solution remaining should just be plain old water. However, one Swiss chemist is finding evidence that water actually remembers what was dissolved in it. By taking a salt solution and diluting it extensively, he made it likely that there were no salt molecules left in the container used. Let's call this a non-salt solution, as there is no longer any salt in it. 
He then froze this non-salt solution and blasted the ice with radiation. As the ice warmed, it gave off a glow from the energy stored from the radiation. The glow was different when a non-salt solution was used to when pure water was used. This means that the structure of the ice crystals was different when salt had been included in the solution at some point in the past. Just remember that while this is a strange result, it doesn't necessarily mean that homeopathic medicines work. Whichever way you look at it, water is weird. It has properties that make it a virtually unique liquid. Life on Earth is dependent on water and its weird properties. This strong connection between water and life has led to scrutiny of nearby planets and moons to see whether water exists there. The search for water on places such as Mars is so important because if water is present there, so too could be life. And that was Kashina Allen from New York, and you're listening to Diffusion. That something strange had come between us now I believe in love I believe in love I believe in love But to you You are my mate For years they said we were inseparable But I
welcome back to Diffusion. That was Bob Evans with the track Friends. Have you been waiting with bated breath for the second half of Mark West's top stories of 2006? Well, wait no longer. At number five, we've got Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin was probably one of the best-known advocates for wilderness and animal conservation in the world, and he tragically passed away last year in North Queensland. He was arguably Australia's best-known science communicator, although he was more popular overseas, particularly in America, than he was at home. His unconventional methods of communicating his work, some say he provoked animals to get them to attack on camera in order to bring viewers to his Crocodile Hunter series, grew criticism from some and inspired others. Yet it is unarguable that Irwin will have a lasting effect on the environmental and conservation movements in Australia and around the world. Number four, 2006 saw a vaccine for cervical cancer approved for the first time. The vaccine, first developed by Australian of the Year, Professor Ian Fraser, is now available to those willing to pay for it. There are two vaccines out there, one from Merck, the other from GlaxoSmithKline. Both have demonstrated in clinical trials that they can prevent infection from the two types of human papillomavirus that account for up to 70% of cervical cancers. In the US, over 10,000 women contract invasive cervical cancer annually, and nearly 4,000 die from it. At number three... Until 2006, South Korean Hwan Woo-suk was considered a pioneer in the field of stem cell research. However, on May 12, 2006, Hwan was indicted on embezzlement and bioethics law violations linked to faked stem cell research. So he faked it all. His famous 2004-2005 science articles, in which he claimed to have succeeded in creating human embryonic stem cells by cloning, were found to contain vast amounts of fabricated data. He also had a shot at cloning mammoths, fraudulently obtained money for his research, and embezzled $3.8 billion Australian dollars worth of state and civilian donations to his research team. In one saving grace, however, for the researcher, investigators into the affair found that his claim to be the first to successfully clone a dog was accurate. The dog, an Afghan hound, was named Snuppy. At number two, we've got an even further fall from grace, as 2006 saw the astronomical demotion of Pluto from planet to planetoid. The hub of all space knowledge, the International Astronomical Union, came up with the first ever definition of what it is to be a planet, and Pluto failed. At one stage, it looked as though our solar system might have ended up with a number of new planets, including Pluto's moon Charon, the asteroid Ceres, and the newly discovered body 2006 UB313. However, in the end, it was decided that because these bodies had not completely cleared their orbit of the other space material and debris, they could not officially be called planets. So now, we've only got eight. This has meant a tough job for textbook writers around the world, but there's a nice symmetry now. In general, atoms are most stable when they've got eight electrons in their outermost shell. Now we have a stable solar system with eight planets. Intelligent design, convergent evolution, or coincidence? Who knows? And at number one. Former U.S. Vice President and failed U.S. presidential candidate Al Gore has finally won an election. Well, he's won the entirely undemocratic election that came up with this list. His documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, has become the third highest grossing documentary of all time and brought the issue of global warming to the forefront of the public consciousness. 2006 saw global warming become the most talked about scientific topic of the year. Some scientists denied it. Others blamed everything from animal migrations to the performance of the local sporting team on it. But you certainly couldn't ignore it. Global warming was everywhere in the press. And it's a process that takes of the order of 100 years to have an effect, so it's kind of difficult to prove. However, many researchers in the field now think that global temperatures could rise by as much as 5 degrees Celsius and sea levels by 20 feet. 
Some good news is that whilst carbon dioxide levels continue to climb, levels of methane, a far more potent greenhouse gas, have mysteriously stabilised. The debate has now caused the EU and California to adopt a carbon trading system, and even the Australian government has been forced to think about it, which given our reliance on dirty old coal as an energy source, despite having massive areas exposed to the sun and wind that could be used for solar or wind power, is only a good thing. That was Mark West with his top five science stories of 2006. Now here we go, dropping science, dropping it all over. Like bumping around the town like when you're driving a Range Rover. Been dropping the new science and I've been kicking the new knowledge. And I see to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. And finally, some good news for expectant chocoholics. Some new research has been looking into the possible benefits of chocolate consumption during pregnancy. So if you're pregnant, oh look, even if you're not pregnant, you should probably crack open a block of your favourite chocolate to enjoy while Kashina Allen tells you how good you're being. Chocolate sweetens pregnancy. A couple of decades ago, a number of babies were born with classic heroin withdrawal symptoms restlessness, inability to sleep, sweating and irritability. Their mothers strongly resisted any suggestion of heroin or other narcotic use. An investigation by doctors showed that all mothers were heavy coffee drinkers. High caffeine intake during pregnancy could seemingly lead to symptoms in babies equivalent to withdrawal from strong illicit drugs. In fact, research seems only to find more ways in which caffeine and reproduction do not mix. A single cup of brewed coffee a day halves a woman's chances of becoming pregnant, probably due to spontaneous abortion after conception. The effect on babies may be more far-reaching. Crossing easily over the placenta, caffeine readily enters fetal tissue. Just two or three brewed cups a day during pregnancy reduces infant birth weight and retards development. Four cups of coffee a day may significantly increase the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. Rodent studies further suggest that the effects of caffeine may reach beyond the first generation, with grandchildren also potentially affected by heavy in utero caffeine exposure. Stopping caffeine once pregnant may not even prevent all problems. Heavy caffeine consumption has been shown to damage sperm quality. Caffeine consumption in the menstrual cycle prior to conception may affect the health of future children. In light of such research, most prenatal health guides now recommend low caffeine intake for expectant mothers. With so much bad news about caffeine and reproduction, chocoholics must become quite depressed when facing pregnancy. The stress of quitting chocolate can add to what must already be a stressful time. Caffeine is present in varying amounts in numerous food and beverages, including coffee, tea and soft drinks such as colas. However, recent reports suggest that the news for chocoholics may not be as bleak as first thought. Contrary to popular belief, chocolate has very limited quantities of caffeine. Instead, it contains another compound, theobromine. Like caffeine, theobromine is a stimulant with mood-altering properties. 
Theobromine is also found in lower quantities in tea, but not in coffee. Dark chocolate has been shown to have possible, limited health benefits due to high levels of antioxidants. Milk and white chocolate do not appear to have any such benefits, probably negated by the high fat and sugar content. In terms of reproduction, two studies have shown benefits of moderate consumption of chocolate during pregnancy. A recent study by McConaughey et al. from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has linked regular chocolate consumption with reduced first trimester, before the first 13 weeks, risk of miscarriage. They showed a slight but significant drop in miscarriage rates for women who consumed chocolate on most or all days. While the authors did not comment on this finding, the result, if further verified, could be due to the possible cardiovascular benefits of chocolate. More likely though, it could be a result of lowered stress in the mother. Chocolate is mood-altering and known to positively affect stress. Stress has long been linked to miscarriage and other problems during pregnancy. A 2004 study from Finland showed mothers who consumed daily chocolate whilst pregnant rated their children as happier on an infant behavioural questionnaire. This was evidenced by increased laughter and smiles and reduced crying at six months of age. The authors explain this as possible physiological changes in infants born to chocolate-consuming mums. They did not control for chocolate consumption after birth, so offered, as an alternative explanation, the benefits of chocolate on maternal mood improving mother-baby interactions and leading to healthier babies. I wonder too whether breast milk may provide continued exposure. On a more cynical note, as infant behaviours were reported by their mothers, perhaps continued chocolate consumption merely led to mothers perceiving their babies as happier rather than affecting the infants themselves. The same study also looked at stress. Maternal stress during pregnancy is a predictor of fear responses to new stimuli in six-month-old babies. In infants born to mothers who consume daily chocolate, this fear response was largely negated by chocolate consumption. This could mean that maternal chocolate consumption could not only improve the temperament of babies, it could reduce the known effects of in utero stress on newborns. Neither study controlled for the quantities or type of chocolate consumed, and a new Italian study warns of possible withdrawal symptoms in infants born to chocoholic mothers. Like everything, it seems that moderation in chocolate consumption is the key. Ah, oh, damn. I really wanted that to be more encouraging about the mass consumption of chocolate all the time. But now for the news that didn't quite make the news that we didn't have this week, Sasha Seltzer and Catherine Biag. Take it away. Imagine yourself naked standing upright on an iceberg. Though this isn't a common activity for humans, and we'd probably get frostbite, penguins from Antarctica do this day in, day out for 365 days a year. So, Cat, how is it that their little penguin feet don't freeze and drop off like icicles? Well, according to new scientists, penguins have thankfully adapted to their frosty climate 
and can preserve their body temperatures to about 40 degrees Celsius. Unfortunately, they don't have the luxury of antifreeze technology like us. However, their exposed feet stay a degree or two from freezing and their secret is in their veins. The penguins do this by controlling the diameter of their blood vessels. In cold conditions, the flow of blood to their feet is slowed and when it is warm, it increases again. You can observe this same mechanism in us. We go blue when it's cold and get red flushes when it's warm. Penguins also have a neatly wired circulatory system that helps to retain heat as they stand exposed on frozen ground. Arteries supplying warm blood to their feet run adjacent to the veins carrying cool blood to their core. Heat is transferred from the hot blood to the cold blood, so little of it is lost to their feet. But Kat, all of this very cool science is a little trivial, don't you think? Considering the polar caps are melting due to global warming. My question is, will penguins' feet ever adapt to fire walking? Well, it's home time for Team Diffusion for another week. We've had a great time talking about science this week and we hope you've had a good time listening. If you want to contact the Diffusion team about any stories from today or you want to suggest a story for next time, you can email us at diffusion at 2ser.com. To download any of our shows since the dawn of time, just log on to our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Tilly Berlin, and I've produced today's show, which has had tantalising tidbits from Mark West, Kashina Allen, Catherine Behag and Sasha Selter. We'll meet you back here same time next week for another session of Diffusiony Goodness. <laughs>